Section 2 of Harper's Young People. Volume 1, Issue 27, May 4, 1880. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Harper's Young People, Volume 1, Issue 27, May 4, 1880. Grandpa's Barn by Mary D. Bryan. Oh, a jolly old place is Grandpa's barn, where the doors stand open throughout the day, and the cooing doves fly in and out, and the air is sweet with the fragrant hay, where the grain lies over the slippery floor, and the hens are busily looking around, and the sunbeams flicker, now here, now there, and the breeze blows through with a merry sound. The swallows twitter and chirp all day, with fluttering wings in the old brown eaves, and the robins sing in the trees which lean, to brush the roof with their rustling leaves. Oh, for the glad vacation time, when Grandpa's barn will echo the shout of merry children who romp and play in the newborn freedom of school let out. Such scaring of doves from their cosy nests, such hunting for eggs in the loft so high, till the frightened hens with a cackle shrill from their hidden treasures are fain to fly. Oh, the dear old barn, so cool, so wide, its doors will open again ere long to the summer sunshine, the new mown hay, and the merry ring of vacation song. For Grandpa's barn is the jolliest place For frolic and fun on a summer's day And in old time, as the years slip by Its memory never can steal away End of Grandpa's Barn Begun in number 19 of Harper's Young People, March 9 Across the Ocean Or A Boy's First Voyage A True Story by J. O. Davidson. Chapter 9. Ashore at Malta. Sailors have a proverb that Valletta Harbour is like a hencoop. No getting out when you're in, and no getting in when you're out. So thought Frank, as the steamer glided into a narrow channel between the two enormous forts of the outer harbour through the embrasures of which scores of heavy cannon, high up over the mastheads of the Arizona, looked grimly down. Other forts, almost equally huge and formidable, guarded the entrance to the inner harbour, which was so narrow that the three English ironclads anchored within almost blocked it up, and it was a puzzling question how the Arizona was to pass them. We're bound to have a smash now, muttered Herrick, unless that lover of a pilot's kind enough to fall overboard. The poor Maltese speedily justified this bitter verdict. Two of the vessels were passed safely, but as they neared the third, the pilot got flurried and gave a wrong order. The next moment, the Arizona came smash into the counter of the ironclad sweeping away the miniature flower garden 
which her captain had arranged along the stern galley, overturning several guns, and, as Jack Dewey poetically phrased it, play in thunder and pitchforks generally. Instantly, the English boatswain's shrill pipe was heard, and a crowd of sturdy fellows in clean whites and bare feet came racing aft and cleared away the wreck in a twinkling, not without a few rough-hewn jokes at Yankee seamanship, which the Arizona's men repaid with interest. "'Just as well you got no navy, if that's how you handle a ship,' shouted one of the English. "'Better have none at all than one made out of cracked tea-kettles,' retorted Herrick, who never lost the chance of having a fling against steam. The pilot, who had been shaking in his shoes at the mishap, now began to hope that it would all end in a laugh, but he was not to escape scot-free after all. As the Arizona forged ahead, a rotten egg, flung through one of the ironclad's open ports, hit him full on the forehead and exploded over his whole face like a bombshell, making such an object of him as his own father would scarcely have recognised. An American steamer, does not touch a valetta every day, and the Arizona soon had plenty of visitors. Most of the crew being busy, Frank was told off to act as showman, and for the first two days he had more than enough to do. From sunrise to sunset, the decks were crowded with sightseers of all ages and conditions. Stiff, wooden-faced soldiers from the garrison, languid ladies who looked much more at each other's bonnets than at the ship, and seemed to be always sitting down and never getting up. Jaunty military officers with uniforms as trim as their moustaches. Huge red-whiskered sailors from the English men of war, who kept patting Frank on the head like a child, to his great indignation. And native Maltese, who seemed immensely astonished at all they saw and chattered over everything like so many parrots. Some of these last mistook the white-painted iron of the engine for wood, and were seen trying to chip off pieces of it with their knives as mementos of the visit. But when once he was off duty, Austin began to enjoy himself in earnest. There really seemed to be no end to the curious sights of the place. The steep, breakneck streets, almost like paved precipices, the tall, thick-walled, narrow-windowed houses, small fortresses in themselves, the shaven monks who looked terribly hot in their heavy black robes, the slim, dark-eyed Greeks with their jaunty red caps, and the gaunt, swarthy moors, scowling from under their huge white turbans, the queer little Maltese boats with high prows and sterns, quaintly carved and painted, the files of donkeys plodding past under big baskets of fruit, with their barefooted drivers yelling behind them, the huge forts built by the Knights of St. John, the former owners of Malta, nine thousand of whom had held them for eight months against thirty-five thousand Turks during the great siege of 1565, and the stately English ironclads which seemed to be always exercising their men, or standing out to sea to bang at a floating mark with their big guns 
for hours together. But there were other and even more striking sights than these. There was the old city of Chittavecchia, with its ruined aqueduct. There was the church of St. Paul, the first built on the island, the ceiling of which is covered with magnificent frescoes, while the floor is one mass of precious stones, worked into portraits of the great men who lay beneath it. There was a cave, said to have sheltered St. Paul after his shipwreck, and containing a fine statue of him. There was the garden of St. Antonio, which, in the glory of the dazzling southern sunshine, seemed the most beautiful of all. There was the armory of the Knights of St. John, where Frank saw numbers of huge bows, battle-axes, and two-handed swords, a quaint old cannon made of copper tubes covered with coils of rope, which usually burst at the fifth shot. And last, but certainly not least, an enormous helmet, as heavy and almost as big as a washtub, is said to have been worn by a gigantic knight of the order, who, after defending the gate of Fort St. Elmo, single-handed against a whole battalion of Turkish Janizaries, had at length to be blown bodily away with cannonballs. Austin did not forget to visit the catacombs, which fully bore out Herrick's description of them. Far and wide, the earth was honeycombed with these gloomy galleries, in which hundreds of years before, the Christians of Malta had found refuge, while everything above ground was being wasted with fire and sword by the destroying rage of the Saracens. Crumbling stone crosses, Rudely carved names, antique burial places, seamed the gloomy walls in every direction, while the skulls and bones of men, women, and children lay underfoot like shells upon the seashore. In the fitful glare of his torch, the long dark robe and white corpse-like face of the monk, who acted as guide, might well have passed for one of the dead, about whom he told so many ghastly stories, and Frank was not sorry to find himself in the bright sunshine once more. But on looking round him, he saw with amazement that it was now right on the opposite side of the mountain, several miles from the spot where he had entered it, and then his monkish guide, by way of a satisfactory wind-up, proceeded to relate in his most dismal voice how a gay party of English naval officers descended into this gloomy maze to make a complete exploration of it, and were never seen again. On the last night of their stay in Malta, the Arizona's officers and crew went in a body to the opera house, a fine building of grey stone, to hear a young American singer in La Sonnambula. At first, the Maltese seemed disposed to find fault with her, but all adverse demonstrations were speedily overwhelmed by the uproarious applause of the English and American sailors, even when their heroine made a false step in her crossing of the bridge and tumbled bodily onto the floor of the stage. The gallant blue jackets applauded as lustily as if this were the best part of the performance, though Jack Dewey afterward observed that it was a bad sign of any craft to capsize that way in a calm. Next morning they were off, but not without a hitch or two before starting. 
At the last moment, the man who had been hurt at Gibraltar had to be sent ashore, invalided, and another hand shipped in his place. Then two of the firemen were found to be missing and turned up just in time to scramble aboard in what the chief engineer called a strictly unsober condition. One of them, who seemed to be in a quarrelsome humour, was beginning to shout and abuse everyone when Captain Gray suddenly appeared beside him. Stop that noise, said he very quietly, and go forward at once. Pretty tall talk, that, growled the brawler. I ain't a-going for it for nobody. One man's as good as another. The words were barely out of his mouth when the quiet captain's clenched fist flew right into it, with a shock that made his teeth rattle like dominoes and sent him sprawling on his back. Put that man in irons, Mr. Hawkins, and pass him down between decks, said the captain, walking aft as if nothing had happened. Aye, he's the one to sell them, muttered old Herrick, nodding approvingly. I tell you, Frank, my boy, it's as hard to get off any falling on our old man as to get apology out of a middy. How's that? asked Austin, seeing by the twinkle of the old quartermaster's eye that there was a good story coming. Ah, don't she know that yarn? Well, it's worth hearing, too. I got it from a Britisher last time I was here. You see, there was a young middy aboard one of Nelson's ships in the old war who was always in some scrape or other. And one day, the third officer, Mr. Thorpe, got riled with him and called him a confounded young bear. Well, says the mid, quick as winking, if I'm a bear, you're not fit to carry bones to a bear anyhow. What? What? cries Thorpe. Mutiny, as I live, you well. I'll teach you to talk that way to me. And off he goes to the captain and reports him for disrespect to his superior officer. Well, the captain calls up Mr. Middy and tells him this sort of thing won't do no how, and he must either apologize or leave the ship. So the mid takes off his cap with a regular dancing school bow and says, Mr. Thorpe, I said just now that you are not fit to carry bones to a bear. I was wrong, and willingly apologize, for I now see that you are fit to carry them. Sir, begins the captain, in a voice like a nor'east gale. Oh, Captain Maine, says Thorpe, who aren't bright enough to see the joke. If the young gentleman sees his error and takes back his words, I'm satisfied. Well, says the captain, biting his lips to keep from laughing, if you're satisfied, I am. But catch me ever trying to get an apology out of a midshipman again. To be continued. End of section two. Read by Alan Lord.